This show is part of the Pika Science Podcast, studying the intersection of video games and science. You've journeyed long and far to this distant world in search of lost knowledge. You found the temple, but search for a missing tome. Quick, roll an investigation check. 18. Impressive. You search a few rooms, and there it is, hidden in a compartment behind a throne. You open the tome and begin looking at the magical script. Roll an arcana check. Natural 20, success. Now it's time to unlock all the knowledge of... Ben Richton's Guide to Monsters and Lore. Welcome everyone to Ben Richton's Guide to Monsters and Lore. I'm Madison, and introducing the main man himself, the man with a plan who knows all of the stories and lores and histories of everything, everywhere, all at once. <laughs> Coming to you from Studio A21, it's Ben. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the introduction. Appreciate it. I do, in fact, know everything. That's true. No. <laughs> quick, 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 give me uh, the, how do you find the area of a circle? Ooh, two. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, we don't know everything, but welcome to the show. (laughs) This is about culture, not about math. Um, (laughs) But yes, welcome to our very first episode of a brand new series for the Pika Science podcast crew. This is Ben Richten's Guide to Monsters and Lore. Yay. so we thought we would take a little detour from our normal Pokemon-based content and do a little D&D-based content, Dungeons & Dragons, um, similar nerd franchise, lots of monsters to work with. Very excited to go through this series, yes. So first thing I just want to pull out here, and maybe this will only be for the first episode, but a tiny little bit of like history of D&D as a franchise um, just so we know like where this came from. Um, so Dungeons and Dragons, quintessential tabletop RPG, every I'm pretty sure everyone knows what it is, right? I think we're getting ahead of ourselves though. We we have are to we? introduce who we are. Yeah, because a lot of these listeners are not even gonna be fans of the Pika Science podcast. They're coming for the Dungeons and Dragons. Hopefully you stay for all the other great programming we have here on Pika Science. But they're here for the Dungeons and Dragons. So oh, they, might so not, right. they, might, they might not be into capsule monsters. Yeah, just the big, big, you know, monsters we make out of 3D printers. <laughs> hey, we have one. It's great. I, I, I love it. I'm so happy my fiance bought that. The amount of miniatures I have printed, I can't, cannot count. Oh, that's so beautiful. Well, because I, uh, I run a game for uh, our family. Oh. Yeah. Oh, that's so yeah. nice. So uh, Lila, who also is part of the Pika Science Podcast, Lila's Lessons, uh, and Lila and my other daughter, Haley, and then uh, my fiance, Kevin, and then it rotates who the fourth is. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's always one of the two, uh, one of the two who are, who play in the Flaming Dice uh, with me on Twitch. Uh, so it's either, you know, it's one of the two, my friends, Colin or Sarah, at the Whoever's available that day. And, and we just kind of keep the game going. And uh, yeah, right now they're in a ghost town. They're fighting ghosts. 
Nice. Oh, I wish that were me. <laughs> <laughs> what ghost are you going to fight? Um, I'm thinking like... I'm thinking like ghosts of old capitalist past. Like, <laughs> like Rockefeller. <laughs> Rockefeller. Yeah, yeah, like the real big wigs. Like Henry Ford, yeah. Have some words. Carnegie. Yeah, Carnegie. Mm-hmm. I have some words for those those people. Yeah, I don't know. I'm gonna. I'm. I'm saying I'm going after uh, John Wilkes Booth. Mm-hmm. Unless he gets to you first, he's a quick draw. <laughs> and a terrible an actor. Yeah, <laughs> true. <laughs> he gave up acting for a life of crime. <laughs> oh, cliche, absolutely cliche. All the best actors give up acting for a life of crime. <laughs> uh, so anyway, so, so real, real quick, uh, introduce yourself and why did you want to do a D&D podcast? Absolutely. Um, so I am a PhD student in cultural studies, and I'm really, really interested, you know, apart from video games and the internet and Pokemon, of course. Uh, I love the horrifying stuff, the scary things. I love some monsters, love a little monster theory. Um, and D&D is like one of the premier pop culture places where people get their monster fix. Um, so I really love to talk about the cultural origins of monsters whenever I can. Well, I I personally uh, have been DMing for nine years now. Uh, I told you that I would tell the story because I haven't told you of how yes. I accidentally oh. accidentally became a DM. Yeah, how do you get roped into being a DM? Like, I don't get this. Okay, so I tried three point five in high school for a girl I liked, um, as the queerest bitch on the planet. Boys roles, whatever. I like y'all, and. I totally like got super into it and well, super into trying to learn it for her, but 3.5 was super crunchy and obnoxious. So I gave up and said, this is stupid. Cause I didn't want to have to like read, you know, 14 books just to build a character. So I said no. And then all through high school or all through college, my previous best friend would ask me to play D anD. Uh, like I think he joined a campus group at one point. It was going every Thursday, and he was like, "You have to come." And I was like, "No, it's never happening. It's never happening. Just stop." And <laughs> so, flash forward, I have you know had a baby, had Lila. Lila's here, and our friendship kind of getting a little older as we we're getting older. And I finished my first master's getting ready to start my second one. And he was like, well, you know, there's this thing, you know, I- I've done a whole lot for you. Cause he said like, you know, I learned how to play an instrument and we'd started a band because I had always been in bands all through college. And to be fair, he learned bass. And I'm, <laughs> I'm not dissing like the good bassists are good bassists. Like flea Tetsuya Onigawa. Holy crap. Yes. Yes, please. Any day, all day. But, you know, like a regular pop basis, like no one knows the name of the guy who plays bass in Matchbox 20. No one needs to know it. Like, you know, it's not it's not pertinent. So but I felt bad because he was right. He, he did a lot of things that I had always wanted to do. So I said, sure, I'll play. But I didn't want to like DM or anything. I was like, I'll play. So he got me, uh, him and his now wife. And a friend of ours, and we were supposed to play for a session. And 
I had done online like role playing, like forum based role playing all through high school. So I was really good at role playing and acting to the point where like I, I kind of did the the uh not stereotype but the cliche like brooding ranger doesn't like anyone to the point where I kind of pissed off his now wife because I like I stayed in character the whole fucking night and they're like why don't you care about helping us with our objective and so <laughs> our DM quit and refused to run the game after that and I felt awful because like I wasn't trying to be like a dick like I I just I really got into the role playing because I've always done it and so for me it's just like oh okay I, I can do this so about a month and a half later, like, he was feeling bad, and I felt bad, because he was like, well, I still want to play. And he was like, but I don't I don't know how to run the game, I don't know anyone who will run it for us. And I was like, well, okay, I guess I can run it? So then he was like, well, you have to watch this show, you know, you might have heard of it, this small show called Critical Role. It was just starting out at the time, and he was like, you, just, you have to watch it. So he made me watch, like, the first 14 episodes. <laughs> Which back then they were like four and a half hours long. <laughs> like the original season, the original run, they're like four and a half hours long. Like it was a lot. Uh, but so then I was like, okay, I was arrogant and was like, well, if Matt Mercer can run a game with eight people, so can I. Yes. <laughs> so my first campaign, our first session, our first night, I had five players. And by session 10, I was at six. And by session. 20 we added another and we just kept adding <laughs> so how many did you end up with people some people came and left as it went mm -hmm. um but somewhere like total let me think i actually have a painting on the wall of the campaign that i made so one two, uh 10 different people oh my gosh and it lasted it lasted through it lasted over three years <laughs> oh my god so you really did okay you really did get roped into this <laughs> I mean, I felt bad. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, that's so... I love that. That's a great story. But because of that, I learned how to do it. And um, I started running games at charity events. And I, my daughter went to one of them. And Lila was only four at the time. But Lila is Lila. And anyone who listens to Lila's lessons is like, that kid is smart. And so she started playing Dungeons and Dragons at four. Couldn't uh, fully read all the numbers and had to like count on her fingers to do the math, but started playing. And so uh, she created her first character, Peaches the Minotaur, which we still love in this house very much. Oh, what an icon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, like, it was so great because Peaches is like the antithesis of Lila. Like, Lila is like my anxiety kid. And Peaches is like, no, no, I, I got this. Don't worry about it. Like, so that's so incredible. and then i've been oh. running them with my kid kind of ever since you know and then i started running flaming dice during covid so it's just been one thing after another wow. but it's always now, been about like friends and family so yeah now you're an expert oh that's great i don't know if i'm an expert yet but expert. sure okay <laughs> <laughs> we're deciding i i do keep saying at some point if i do finish like if i ever do finish this third masters that at some point i get to label myself expert <laughs> Yeah, I mean, at some point, right? It's just like a natural... <laughs> at some point. I'm an expert in my field. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, we can claim that. All right, so let me ask you really quick. Uh, what yes. Is, what is the history behind D&D? Like, what, what is this? Yeah, well, and it's interesting that you ask. Um, <laughs> so, D&D &D, um, started way before Pokemon. Um, it started in 1974. 
Um, so actually, next year is the 50th anniversary, which is very Ooh, exciting. Which is why the new edition's coming out. Yes. Um, they're publishing a whole bunch of stuff in the next year. So look out for that. Um, but it was started by two different guys, uh, Gary and Dave, who are actually both from the Midwest. Uh, and they, as of like 10 or so years ago, they've both passed away. Um, so, you know, RIP, we're doing this in their memory. But they started this tabletop game in 1974. And then that was published by a company called Tactical Study Rules, or TSR. Uh, and then in 1997, subsequent editions of D&D were published you know, from that point onward, but they were owned by Wizards of the Coast, uh, which was itself acquired by Hasbro. So you might know Wizards of the Coast already because they also published Magic the Gathering and they were the original publisher of the Pokemon TCG in the United States. There's uh, the connection. That that's the, the connection case, right yes, there. That's the connection. connection. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Wizards of the Coast now is much more focused on Magic the Gathering and D&D. Uh, D &D. They sure. don't really do anything with Pokemon, but so be it. As of right now, the most current edition of D&D is the 5th edition. Um, people call it 5E, and that was published in 2014. So it's coming up on just under a decade old. And all of that is well and good. But like I said before, we're really here to talk about the monsters in D&D. And so as far as monsters go, there were a couple other, like, what do we call them? Supplementary materials, I uh, suppose. So we have source books. We, we call them yeah, source, source books. So the Monsters Manual is is considered to be like one of the DM's, uh, like DM toolkit kind of books. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I think the first one came out like just with the first editions, so like 1976, 1975. It was like pretty close to the beginning. But now we have a much newer one published in 2014, The Monster Manual. We also have a couple other ones. We have Volo's Guide to Monsters, which is published in 2016. And then Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft is also a like darker spin on the lore of D&D, &D, which was published in 2021. Um, so much more recent. Uh, and like I said, 50th anniversary in 2024. So I'm sure there'll be a lot of new surprises coming. But like, yeah, like we have, so Volo's and then uh, Mordekane's Tomb of uh, Foes, which I love. You brought in all like the demon stuff. I love demons. Our entire first camp campaign, like the three and a half year one, was like all demons. Uh, my favorite, my other favorite one is Fizbins, oh, Treasury of Dragons, uh, nice. because that is where Lila got the idea for her newest character, uh, Lotus, who is a uh, amethyst gem dragon. Oh, yeah, very pretty, yeah, iridescent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then you know we also have like setting guides like. Eberron, Rising Last War, and Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica. So there's all sorts of great books out there that have supplements. And a lot of the the adventure guides, too, include supplemental monsters, like uh, Journey to the Abyss has a bunch in there. So, you know, it's it's like it's, it's, it's definitely more concentrated than it used to be in older editions, but there's still a ton out there. A ton. Well, and that's the great thing. If any of you after listening to this are like, oh my gosh, I want to get into D&D too. Um, there's so many places for you to start. Like, it's yeah. really cool. So I'm going to ask you and we're going to go quick with this one. But yeah, what are monsters? And don't you dare say capitalists, <laughs> even though it's true. <laughs> <laughs> See, big question, big question. Um, and that's the fun thing, though. So Despite, you know, as far as D&D goes, monsters have been there since the beginning. But if you're going to take a step back and talk about, you know, real world, cultural, like what is a monster? Uh, goodness gracious, it's really hard to define. <laughs> However, 
I do have a great source. Um, so we can like put a put a pin in this definition, do the best that we can for like a universal definition of a monster. Um, so this guy named Jeffrey Jer- Jeffrey Jerome Cohen uh, wrote an article called Seven Theses of Monster Culture in 1996, and I feel like he really gets at the heart of what a monster is, despite the you know definition being still slippery and not really definable. But here's what he says a monster is. So the monster is born at a metaphoric crossroads as an embodiment of a certain cultural moment of a time, a feeling, and a place. The monster's body quite literally incorporates fear, desire, anxiety, and fantasy, giving them life and an uncanny independence. The monstrous body is pure culture. A construct and a projection, the monster exists only to be read. The monstrum is etymologically that which reveals or that which warns a glyph that seeks a hierophant. Um, And just a note on that, a glyph that seeks a hierophant, meaning that it is a picture or an inscription that requires someone to translate it to you. Um, So like a letter on the page, the monster signifies something other than itself. It is always a displacement, always inhabits the gap between the time of upheaval that created it and the moment into which it is received to be born again. What on earth does that mean? He's kind of just saying, well, no, literally, like he kind of is just saying um, that every culture at any given time, they have to deal with things they don't understand, things that are other than human, um, things that are scary. You know, he uses the word uncanny independence. So at any given time, you know, we as humans are creating these um, things, these beings, uh, these stories, uh, and then we perceive them at the time they're created, as well as at the time that, you know, later on. So a lot of the monsters we're talking about in D&D have existed for literally, literally like millennia, uh, and we're still talking about them. So that's fascinating to me. Yeah. Also elaborating on this, um, just so we have a good grasp of like what really we're talking about is the actual seven theses of a monster. Um, so write these down. There's going to be a quiz. I did not Number bring a one. pencil. Hold on. Oh, you better. You, you weren't prepared. I'm sorry. <laughs> All good. It's, it's an open note guide. So okay, open note test. <laughs> yeah. Open note test. Um, <laughs> My favorite. Number one, the first thesis is the monster's body is a cultural body. Uh, number two is the monster always escapes. Love that one. Monster or number three, the monster is a harbinger of category crisis, which is really his way of saying it's really hard to define. Um, number four, the monster dwells at the gates of difference. Um, and often difference in this regard is not human. So different than human. Uh, number five, the monster pleases the borders of the possible. And that's where we really get into like bleeding into sci-fi fantasy monsters. They're kind of doing things that we didn't really think were possible in human imagination. Uh, number six is fear of the monster is really desire of the monster. Provocative. And number seven, the monster stands at the threshold of becoming. So, you know, in other words, the monster is always shifting its definition. It's always shifting its um, possibility. We don't really know what the next monster is going to look like or what previous monsters used to look like. Yeah. So this is the best universal definition that we have. And I don't really have anything to add to it. I think Mr. Cohen, you know, laid out some pretty good definitions. So we'll, we'll go with this. So I know that in this show, we're going to look at monsters and the cultural origins all over the world. But for this episode, we talked about going with uh, Celtic origins. 
And we kind of want to tie into, you know, the spooky theme we have going on here at Pika Science, kind of tying everything into, you know, the month, whether or not you celebrate Hollow's Eve doesn't mean I can't also enjoy watching Hocus Pocus. I mean, I I love October, so. (laughs) I just like that my favorite beer comes out and that my fiance is nice enough to let me drink it whenever I want. Obviously, oh, wait, not which one is it? Atomic pumpkin. Oh, I literally have had that before. It's it's a spicy beer. Yes. I like that. I like spicy. Nice. Uh, so here's how the show's going to work, friends. We're going to break it down into three separate parts. Part one, the monsters and the lore from our world that went into them. Part two, the monster lore in the D&D world. So what happens in the Forgotten Realms and Faerun. And part three, how as a DM or player... To use this monster effectively. Okay, where were we? So, we're talking about parts one, two, and three of the episode. So, part one is going to talk about the actual real world, real life, cultural origins of each of these monsters. And we have, today, we have three beautiful, delectable monsters from Irish and Celtic lore that we're going to dive into. Well, let's let's jump right into it. Why don't we just jump right into it? We got, we got the Doolahan person. And I gotta say, I love Doolahans and no, not because of Headless Horseman because I, I actually don't care for that story. Um, I, I genuinely, genuinely hate hate Washington Irving's. Oh, what what do you have against my man Irving? Uh, Washington Irving is responsible for America's embrace and love of Christopher Columbus. Oh, you're so right. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not a fan. That said, I do love Doolahans because there's an anime out there. <laughs> Wait, is there really? Yeah, you don't know. There's there's actually a, a rom com anime where a Doolahan falls in love with a sci- with a doctor who works for the mafia. Uh, I did called, not know this. It is called Dorororo. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> because she transformed her steed into a motorcycle, and that's the sound motorcycles make. <laughs> well, and you know what's funny is actually there's like a traditional Irish spelling of Doolahan that kind of l- looks like that. I well, wonder tell us if about it's it. Related. Tell us about it. Tell us all about Doolahan. Let's go. Oh, would I ever love to? So we're talking about. Washington Irving, obviously, Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Yes, I'm sure we all know the story that has taken on a life of its own. And Disney made a movie out of it. Correct. I've had to Correct. watch that so many times because my youngest loves, uh, she doesn't love that part. She loves Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, much more family friendly. I get it. <laughs> it's such a dumb movie. <laughs> Well, the interesting thing is, so that story took place in um, the 13 colonies, of course. It took place in New York before it was really New York. It was still occupied by the Dutch. But the Doolahan, the Headless Horseman himself, was from Celtic origin. Um, so it has nothing to do with you know America's issues. So it comes out of Ireland. And right over there, it's known as the Doolahan or in the Irish spelling, I don't know if I can pronounce this right, but it Do is it. G-A... Oh, gosh. It's spelled G-A-N-C-E-A-N-N. So... Um, Ganchen? Ganchen? I don't know. That sounds more Asian. <laughs> yes, it did. As I said it, I realized it. I don't, but I don't, thankfully... I don't, do, I don't do Gaelic. <laughs> no. Oh, gosh. Me neither. But thankfully, you know, Doolahan's pretty um, anglicized. 
Uh, so really scary, really scary man. He would take the soul of those ready for death. I'm not sure how he decided who was ready for death because it kind of sounds like he just picked somebody. Uh, he, <laughs> you won the lottery. <laughs> yeah, the death lottery. Um, he often rode a headless black horse. So the horse was also headless, which is super scary to me. And if it did have a head, it would be like in front of the body, like as a ghost. Very, oh. very, yeah. Uh, even worse, he used a human spine as a whip. And that's, that's pretty across most tellings of the story. That's a pretty uh, prominent detail. So there's that. And then he would take the eyes of those who stared at him. So Julian's not messing around. He has a human spine. He's stealing your eyes. He's deciding you're going to die. Um, and then he would hold his own head in his arm. So he'd have the whip in one arm, his own head in the other arm. And, and it was a spine th- whip. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Made out of a human spine. Yeah, or really, really killing it with the like scary imagery with this man right here. Uh, and he possessed supernatural sight, so he would hold his head like above where it was supposed to go on his body and look across like the vast valleys of Ireland, and he could look into the houses of those who were dying. And I believe that's how he chose who was next. He could see them from, you know, miles and miles away. Um, So even for like, as far as Irish mythology goes, or Celtic mythology, this is a super dark creature. Like this is a scary figure. Not all of their myths or legends are this dark, which makes it unique. So where did he come from, though? Like, where did this legend start? Some people say that the Dullahan grew out of the ancient Celt- ancient Celtic god, uh, which I believe is pronounced like Cromdu, another yeah, Gaelic so. spelling. Yeah, Cromdu, a dark man, um, a god who asked for human sacrifices, and oftentimes those sacrifices would take place through a beheading. Um, so the beheading part connected to that, of course. Well, uh, some of the stuff I, I listened to and watched and read, I uh, also had like people that would uh, worship him would. I mean, like, it was forced beheadings. It wasn't even like, hey, I need a volunteer. <laughs> no, you, you, you was... are chosen. Yeah. You are chosen. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's interesting Steven, to me... Steven Universe episode right here. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I don't know if the Doolahan would fit in that universe. <laughs> uh, what's interesting about the Doolahan, though, is that he was worshipped in Ireland, or at least the god that he's based on, was worshipped in Ireland until the 6th century. And the reason that he fell out of favor for worship is that that's when Christianity started taking a stronger hold on the island of Ireland. And then the practice kind of stopped. So the rituals kind of, you know, no more beheadings, but the belief in the Doolahan as a figure still continues to this day. So despite the Christianity taking over as like a major issue, I guess, for Irish mythology, uh, the Doolahan is still lurking, lurking the woods. However, it's possible to keep yourself safe if you have an item of gold. Yeah, he for doesn't some like reason, gold, Yeah, for some gold. reason, he's not, not all about the gold. Which I think is funny because usually it's like silver or iron. When you talk about like mythos and like how to ward off creatures. You don't usually hear gold. No, no. Well, next up, if you thought that guy was scary, our next one is interesting. We have the marrow, and no, it is nothing like D&D. No, which, funnily enough, it like could have been, but they changed a few things. So, of course, because Ireland is an island, it has a lot of 
dealings with goings on with the sea. So, of course, they have their own mermaid lore. Uh, and that's where we get the marrow. And marrow comes from the Irish word for sea and the word for maid. So, mir och, you know, another Gaelic. Please forgive me for my horrific, like, Celtic, Gaelic, old Irish pronunciations. These are old, old words. But we got the miroch. Uh, the males are considered to be exceptionally disgusting, like super ugly, super nasty. No one wants to see them. Gross. However, the female of the marrow is said to be pretty typical mermaid, very beautiful, appearing as like a fair maiden from the waist up, a fishtail from the waist down, like pretty prototypical what you think of for a mermaid. Uh, what's interesting, because the male is so ugly, the female marrows prefer to take human lovers. And that's a pretty across the board as the story has changed. That's a pretty um, like stagnant detail that the men are always ugly. So the female marrow have to take human lovers. See, with, mer- uh, with marrow, this preference is so strong that human males are sometimes taken to the underwater layers of the marrow, and they were kept there with magic and enchantments and whoever else the marrow could keep them underwater for so the they time were choosing. being. Choosing once again, <laughs> not to die, but to be in love. That sounds maybe nicer. Which is the exact episode of Steven Universe. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. See, so you see how these myths are still <laughs> with us. Um, it's a little, a little scary though, because if these hostages try to get away, the marrows have a real bad temper thrown into a rage. They can drown the hostages. They drown other innocent sailors coming to look for them. They're raising storms. They even have been known to eat the hostages, a little bit of cannibalism. So here's the thing. If you get taken as a marrow's lover, you better be happy with it. You better, you better be okay with that life. Uh, <laughs> listening to this, so I, uh, I know that there's definitely been like, uh, there were stories I was reading too about like fishermen taking them as, um, you know, the reverse happening as well. Mm-hmm. And all I could think of was, um, I don't know if you know Selkies. Oh yeah, familiar with those. Uh, and uh, there's that movie, uh, Song of the Sea. Yes. Yeah, like first thing that came to my mind. So, so also, yeah. yeah. And we're not going to talk about Selkie so much today, um, but the thing is that the myth of the Selkie and the myth of the Marrow are like super similar, actually. Mm-hmm. And yeah. here's where we get to the similarity is a Marrow has like a magical hat as opposed to a Selkie's, you know, entire skin. The Marrow has a hat, uh, which enables them to dive into the ocean, change between their human and sea dwelling form because they can come out of the ocean and just appear as a human. That's part of the Marrow lore. And the Marrow's cap, uh, according to my sources, holds her enchantment and ensures she can return to the sea when she wishes. So like you were saying with Selkies, if a human lover were to steal the hat, it would keep the marrow on land for good. So that was often something that happened in like how the old Irish people were passing down the tales of marrow is tales of either marrow pulling humans into the sea or humans keeping marrow on land against their will. A pretty prominent theme. Well, and yeah, I do want to point out, like, this is definitely so very different from D&D lore, for sure. Just the marrows in general. <laughs> it is. We'll, we'll get to how the marrow functions in D&D. It's a, it's a little different. So our next monster we have here is the uh, Fomorian. The Fomorians. So this one is super cool. Um, 
We'll talk about more how it shows up in D&D. It's one of the like giant races of people along with all the other millions type of giants in D&D. But where well, they come and a from lot of me, Celtic folklore has a lot of giants uh, in it. And I was reading uh, about that Celtic uh, mythos and folklore and legends are older than like uh, Greek and Norse. And there's a lot yes. of possi- there's a lot of possibility that that actually influenced some of the other uh, because there's overlap in the stories, especially when we get into the Fomorians and then also Furbolgs are related and they're almost like intertwined with parts of Greek mythos, too. Yes, this is true. And it's almost wild to think about how old some of this stuff is, uh, which is one of the it's hard to find the origin, honestly. Well, and I, I like this because you and I, uh, we just talked about this in the ghost episode for the show. And the Egypt episode, we were talking about it on the on the uh, pokey science, uh, like this kind of this fact that themes, you know, kind of like to repeat themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Across all, I was even seeing some sources where some of these Irish myths were connected to like Indian myths uh, from the country of India. Yeah, so I saw that too. there's a lot of yeah. sharing, yeah. So tell us about Fomorians. What are they? Fomorians, so they're considered a supernatural race in Irish mythology, but considered to be hostile, ugly monsters, considered as like chaotic. Uh, I believe in D&D, that's where they get like a chaotic evil alignment, because in Irish mythology, they were also like not great figures. No. They've come to, no, they've come to spread chaos and kill nature and all those things. Um, why is this happening? Originally, they were said to come from under the earth or under the sea. So think demons, think kind of aligned with hell, that sort of like they're coming out of the earth to terrorize whatever is above above the land. Later on, after we've established that they've come from underneath the earth, they were portrayed as giants or like raiders of the sea. And they are enemies of Ireland's first settlers. We get this from, there's a like book of epic stories, kind of similar to, you know, the Odyssey or the Iliad called the Book of Invasions for Irish mythology. And there were six different groups of people that settled Ireland. And so this group of people, the Fomorians, were like the main antagonists to those settlers of like humans. We also have this other group, like this other supernatural group called the, oh boy, Day. Yeah. Toth Day. Yeah. We'll go with that. But the Toth Day were this other group of supernatural beings, also giant, also magical in their own way. And they were the opponents of the Fomorian. So often in this like book of epic stories that uh, Irish lore consists of, the Toth Day and the Fomorians are often battling. The Toth Day end up defeating the Fomorians in a specific battle called Moitura. And I don't know when that happened, you know, eons and millennia and long, long, long ago. But the Day win, and the Day are kind of aligned opposite of the Fomorians. So they're not chaotic, they are calm, they are associated with civilization and fertility, they love nature, those sorts of things. So I guess it's kind of good that good, the good guys won, we could say almost, in this lore. And yeah. the funny thing is, though... That because the stories are so old, there's been some weird overlap. Uh, oftentimes, the Fomorians and the Toth Day are seen having offspring together. Uh, especially, there's a figure called Tethra that is named as presiding over both races, and I think is uh, born of both races. 
So, you know, they were main antagonists, but apparently they were having a little love, little children on the side. So who knows? Uh, what's interesting is that the conflict between these two groups has been likened to some other, like we were saying, some other huge mythological units. So between like the Olympians and the Titans in Greek mythology, we see those as like two big powerhouse groups. And also the Esir and the Venir in Norse mythology. There's oftentimes, you know, in these big mythological ideas that we have from parts of the world, there's like two groups of people that are fighting each other. So Irish mythology is no different. Yeah. I do. Oh, I should say this too, just a small point, because we were talking about the Fyrbolg. The Toth Day also fought against the Fyrbolg. So the Toth Day are just mowing everyone down in these in these epic stories. Uh, anyway, so now we're going to move on. We're going to talk about the D&D lore. So we're going to try to hear, uh, what we're going to do is talk about the lore that as it appears in D&D, and then kind of a quick, like a quick, almost Venn diagram. So let's start with Marrow, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you go ahead and then I'll then diagram it. Yes. Like we were saying earlier, Marrow, very different in D&D. So Marrow have appeared since the beginning. Uh, they've been in D&D since you know, the 1970s. But way back then, they were essentially just like aquatic ogres. So, you know, ugly, nasty, brutish. And by that way, only aligned with like the male Marrow in actual folklore. And it continued to look like that up until, I think, like, fourth or fifth edition of D&D, where they actually got a little bit of real combat skills and real danger to players. But they used to just be kind of ugly, male-aligned, marrow, ogre, ugly things that lived underwater. Well, and the other thing is, uh, D&D gives them a tail, which does not match their actual lore where they can have feet. Um, or like they have feet with little fins on it. So actual lore, the marrow are able to be amphibious, I guess, essentially is a correct word, a correct word for that. Uh, but D&D marrow are not. They cannot really leave the water while they can breathe air. They're not really meant to be out of water. And no. in uh, folklore, marrow and merfolk are not related. But in D&D world, Marrow come from merfolk that like worshipped the Demogorgon. And no, not the weird thing from Stranger Things. We're talking the double-headed baboon with tentacle arms. <laughs> and we're then like twisted because of it. Mm-hmm. This is all true. I even know if you pull Marrow out of the water in D&D, like the current edition, their movement speed gets, it's like forced. We'll talk about it. We'll talk yeah. about it. Don't give but it away. But we'll get to that part. Um, so I'm going to do the Fomorians. Uh, Fide describes them as the most hideous and wicked of all giant kind, and they're godless, whose deformed bodies reflect their vile demeanors. They're said to have misshapen heads or limbs of various sizes. Uh, the Monster Manual goes on to say that their like wretched appearance rarely evokes sympathy. However, for the Fomorians, uh, they brought their doom upon themselves, essentially, with the evil that rules their hearts and minds. So the Forgotten Realms lore says that they used to be handsome and have brilliant minds. But they were consumed by a lust for magic. And I guess they tried to conquer the Feywild <laughs> and tried to use their enslaved captors, enslaved captives for like their own ma- for their magic. Uh, but the Fey apparently united and stood up to the Fomorians and put a curse on them. And then their bodies were warped and they had all their magical powers and intellect removed. So uh, Vicious. In D&D, though, they do live in the Underdark, so that's kind of a match. Underground, Underdark. But they rarely make their way to the surface, which is very different than the Fomorians and Lore. And the Fomorians and Lore, you know, epic battles on the surface. Uh, I was reading about the, uh, what's it called? The channel there where the rocks are connecting uh, with the, they, it's like the giants. Uh, 
Oh, uh, yeah. the Giant's Bridge? I know what you're talking about, like in Ireland, yeah. Yes, it's Northern Ireland. It's like small little islands. And like the story is that like it was uh, it was two Fomorians that made it. They were having a fight. Yeah, it is cool how these monsters show up in geography. I love that. Yeah, but they so anyways these things they live under in the Underdark. Uh, so they maintain like slave labor in the books, uh, and apparently they snack on their captives uh, if the captives are not meeting their demands. Mm, and their societies ruled by strength, and they mark their territories with their enemies' corpses. So, yeah. Uh, also, Honestly, they can apparently pass this curse on to other creatures. <laughs> so, uh, kind of different than the, the Fomorians that we saw in lore. Uh, not similar. Yeah, a little. There's some similarities, but I think D and D takes some liberties with making them like uglier, more evil, more vile, um, deformed. They don't really talk about that sort of thing in the actual myth. Yeah. Uh, so we do realize that looking at it. We we didn't really have anything for Doolahan, but there's not a whole lot. You know, I looked around, uh, and the only thing we get in 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 the in Van Van Richten's, uh, we just we just didn't get a whole lot of backstory besides things that I'm going to mention anyways. Uh, essentially, in Van Richten's, we just talked about them being um, they're undead warriors, and they're like the remains of villains, and they're like vengeance or like decapit you know like decapitated hunters essentially. And they essentially like haunt the areas where they were slain, looking for revenge. So very different than the Julahan from Celtic mythos, mm-hmm. uh, not related mm-hmm. to a god or any way. Just kind of like, hey, you know, I was wicked in life, and now I'm haunting and being nasty. Yeah, it's like they kept the aesthetic, but they had to add a little bit more yeah. combat, which is kind of frustrating because I I do love the story behind it, and I feel like adding in the actual story of Julahan would make your game so much more interesting. Honestly, yeah, there's a lot of really deep lore there, yeah. Okay, so part three, uh, this is a fun part uh, for me at least. Uh, we're going to talk about the monsters and how to use them in your game. So first off, we got the Doolahan, who can be found in Von Richten's Guide to Ravenloft on page 233. Undead creature, uh, pretty awesome. You know, a, a it's a CR-10, uh, it's, you know, 135 hit points, uh, Armor class 16, uh, its stats, you know, plus 4 in strength, plus 2 in dex, plus 3 in con, uh, intelligence plus 1, wisdom plus 2, charisma plus 3. Has a few resistances, cold, lightning, poison. It's immune to charmed, frightened, and poisoned. It has true sight <laughs> and passive perception of 16. It apparently, you know, like, I don't know, this thing is, is awesome. It gets all sorts of extra abilities. It has headless summoning where... It goes into the new mechanics of mythical creatures, where if it dies, it pops back up at 97 and has all sorts of new actions. It has legendary resistances, you know, like new twice a day. It gets multi-attacks, you know, it has a battle axe, which does both slashing and necrotic, which is great. Uh, but it also, you know, if you get a, if you have a, um, if you get a critical hit with the axe, uh, it has a chance to do an instant kill. <laughs> Oh <laughs> yeah, this thing's nasty. Uh, it has fiery skulls that it can throw, 120 foot range, which is pretty great. Three legendary actions a turn. It can make attacks. It has a frightful presence. You know, it can cause creatures within 30 feet to be scared. Uh, it has what's called headhunt, where it can move at speed without getting that attacks opportunity and attack with its axe. It does extra damage at the same time. 
Uh, oh my god! This thing's awesome, and like the mythical abilities too. You know, when it gets those mythic abilities, you know, it has attacks where it uses the skulls it summons as it comes back up. So essentially, when it goes to zero, it pops back up, and it it then summons a bunch of death's heads with it. <laughs> And so it gets to do an attack. Terrifying. It gets to do an attack and the death head attacks with it. Um, it also could do the gigantic whale doing psychic damage. And yeah, it also then gets to give itself temporary hit points. Are you kidding? <laughs> no, what would you thing, even do if you found one of these? <laughs> this thing is awesome. And like the death heads are, like, you know, they're also in um, same book, page 232. They're not very great. You know, they're just a half challenge rating. Uh, but there's three of them, and you get to summon one of each. One does normal damage and a little bit necrotic. Uh, one does normal damage, necrotic, and it does a save. And if they fail a save, the next turn, the the player only gets to move, bonus action, or attack. That's it. <laughs> That's oh it. And you God. get no reaction. Uh, and then the third one, it, it does the attack, and then it also does a save. And if the player fails, they just they start to get they start to turn into stone. <laughs> This thing is nasty. I love it. I love it. Um, I love this thing wow. so much. I love the legendary actions on any creature. I love that it can summon other creatures. I love that it gets legendary resistances. I love that it has okay speed. Uh, most importantly, I love the mythic actions. I think they're awesome. This is the kind of monster I like to throw at my players. Uh, the book describes them as fallen warriors and states that they, you know, that those that follow them in life follow them in death. <laughs> so I would say. They're like the perfect leader for your undead army. So this would be like a great boss or sub-boss, depending on your player's levels. Um, I mean, I can't make that call. It depends on like your player's levels, how many players you have, how many magic items they each have, and you know, knowing your players. But I like to run large groups, as I said. So like five to eight players and tend to give out a lot of magic items, sometimes like candy. <laughs> so for me, you know, I might have a, a lower level party, maybe seven, fight them. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. Uh, the monsters in D&D are scary. Like, I get it. <laughs> so, for sure, I, I would have underlings on on in on this battle. Like, I'd have a skeleton army or rights. Uh, the book suggests nightmares and or skeleton horses, too. So, oh. I'd have this be, like, a legitimate army ready for ranged and melee combat. I'd use my Julihan as, like, the leader and have the first wave or so kind of go out and begin, like, kind of dishing out damage. You know, where the player's down. So no matter how much the party prepares, and even if they're, like, level 10, with enough minions, they'll, you know, to take on, they're going to take damage. And right there, that's my focus. You know, even just a little, I want to wear the party down, have them, you know, go through some spell slots, use some of their abilities or items that have, like, a limit, how often they can be used, get some damage in. Uh, I love skeleton archers. I think they're a great use here, too. So then when the first wave's over, that's when I start get like, second wave come in right away. and Maybe this one's a little bit stronger, right? Maybe it includes, you know, some riders or on skeleton horses, maybe some rape. Um, I, I don't want to overwhelm them. I just kind of want to wear them down with this. And I think halfway through the second wave is where I bring in the jewel ahead. Like, I've never understood DMs who, like, waited for one battle or wave to end before starting the next. Like, if this is the leader, the creature is going to be smart enough to take advantage of distracted players. And that's when I'd have him strike. Like, if he comes riding in, and let's be clear, he should. He should. He needs to be riding. He'll be moving faster to give him a better ability to hit player after player as he aims for the leader of the group or maybe the spellcaster or maybe the healer. Like he's a fallen soldier, right? Yeah? Yes. Okay. So like oh, he yeah. knows yeah. he knows enough who to target. Like I'd make that his focus. Come in fast, do some damage, getting close uh to a player who can really doesn't want that. 
I now, can't the, imagine anyone who would want this. <laughs> well, I mean, like, your tankier <laughs> players aren't going to really care. Um, the battle axe can be, like, an instant kill, though, so be cautious. Like, as a DM, you want to make sure the encounter is challenging without wiping out the whole party. Especially if it's a campaign. No player wants to invest weeks or months into a character for a TPK. So as a DM, be prepared to evaluate as you go. Uh, that said, having the range attack while riding a mount and being able to do heavy damage with the axe and hit and run as like as a tactic is really scary. Like this creature can come riding through the battlefield, hitting down opponents and throwing skulls at, that are out of its range. It allows it to position itself in a way that it's avoiding damage while keeping the players focused on the minions. And the fact that its range for the pumpkin, like you know, it's like skull bombing, it's pumpkin bombings, it's a hundred and twenty <laughs> feet. Like it can, hit, it can hit players left and right while being really safe. Can you imagine being a player and getting bombed by a <laughs> pumpkin from a hundred feet away? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I totally need to use this. So it's legendary actions are where it shines, right? The headhunt's awesome as it, it cannot provoke opportunity attacks. So I'd use this like when you get into melee with a tanky melee character and you get away and hit the healer or support player. Uh, I mean, it does cost three of your reactions, so it's a little bit risky, but timed right to bring more squishy player into the danger zone. It's a great move. And it lets you kind of ensure that everyone's feeling pressure. I would, however, only use it if the Doolahan was not mounted. Because it moves at the Doolahan speed, not the mount. Uh, Frightful Presence is another great early combat action. I'd probably do it early on. Putting fear on as many players as possible helps you keep the pressure on. Having the Frightened Condition on the right creature can make the difference and, like, essentially destroy the entire plans the players have developed. Like, it only, it's not only disadvantage on attack rolls against the Doolahan, it's disadvantage on all attack rolls, as long as the player sees the Doolahan. So this can be nasty if there's an entire army to fight. So it's a special ability, though, that makes it shine. If this thing gets to come back at 97 hit points when it drops to zero. So I love that D&D added these mythic abilities. It makes combat so much more dynamic. So players will come up with a strategy, now have to start from square one, as new abilities and new actions are unlocked. And it really messes with players when they watch the creature drop to zero, and then it like rises again slowly behind them. Yeah, that would freak me out. I mean, this whole like zombification of the Doolahan. Oh, well, they 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 they've added. Uh, it's been like a few books. I think this was one of the first books that did it. Um, but I know Fizzbins has it too. Like there are certain dragons in there. When they drop, they don't drop. So like they, they kind of made it like video game mechanics. Like when you mm-hmm. get the boss into the red health bar, it unlocks new abilities essentially. Uh-huh. The second health bar. Oh god. Yeah, that's essentially what it is. It's a second health bar. <laughs> So I love it, though, because when it does it, it summons the three death heads, and they all get to join the fray. The aberrant head is awesome because it like can take, you know, it can stop players who rely on taking multiple actions on each of their turns. So, like, this is the thing that goes after the fighter. And now the fighter has to then pick between an action, bonus action, or a movement, which sucks. It totally screws them over, yeah. <laughs> it, it removes reactions. It also helps out of the doula hand so it can move between foes and avoid, like, the players taking reactions. Um, the petrifying head, you know, petrifying features turns them into stone for 10 minutes. Awesome ability because you're mobilizing a player, but they're not permanently dead. And I love having these little heads trying to stop your opponents, even if they aren't successfully drowned. Yeah, they just get in the way. <laughs> yeah, it's mythic abilities, uh, mythic actions give it the coordinated assault, which means you can use you can use the heads to make an attack at the same time. Mm, this is awesome because you get like these extra opportunities to attack and have like the aberrant head or petrifying head do what they're trying to do at the same time. So it's an extra chance to do that damage, um, kind of forcing you to like forcing your players to be frozen. 
Uh, Headless Whale, though, this is the thing I love. It's awesome, and I would totally use it the first round this thing bounces back up at 97 hit points. Not only does it do psychic damage, which I always love, but it gains temporary hit points. This is a great buff going right back into a new round of combat. You have the Doolahan rise and do this followed by a coordinated assault. You throw the players off completely. You give yourself a buff, possibly paralyze or slow player, and now you do a new form of damage they're not even expecting. I think this is where a creature like this shines. It's adaptable and can hold, it can like totally mess with any group of players. For players fun facing a monster like this, though, that has such an arsenal of moves and abilities, I'm going to be looking for a way to either limit its options or protect my allies. I think this is like a battle like this where Bless and Bane are absolutely going to be vital. You know, spells like Slow or Shrink uh, are really going to make a difference here and help kind of put a stopper in a menace that can take your party out one by one without really, you know, breaking a sweat. Honestly, this is ridiculous. Like, I, I can imagine. I, I love this thing to death. It's my new best friend. <laughs> Honestly, my only critique that they gave it a battle axe instead of a spine. Yes. Why does it not have a really spine? Wish, really wish it had that human spine <laughs> weapon. Come on now. All right. So next one, uh, Marrow. Uh, so that's fine in the Monster Manual, page 219. Uh, it's a challenge rating. Uh, let me double check. I think it's a challenge rating two. It's a challenge rating two. Uh, kind of basic, you can look it up. Like the stats are pretty, you know, 45 hit points, uh, plus four to strength, plus zero to dex, plus two to con, negative one intelligence, plus zero to wisdom, negative one charisma. Um, it's cool because it's amphibious, right? It can breathe air and water. It has a harpoon, so it can do range attacks, and it does biting or claws for up close and personal. So I've never had the privilege of doing an underwater battle, not once, and I really need to change that. Don't tell Brittany. Please don't tell Brittany. <laughs> I won't. I won't tell anyone. So while they're only a challenge rating of two, underwater battles can pose many challenges for players. Certain weapons are useless, and not all magic is super useful, not to mention the problem of not being able to breathe. So my thought is that I'd have one of two options. One is that they'd be attacking ships, almost like hit and run type of thing. Maybe they attack the sailors and then quickly retreat. Like, we know they have range attacks with the harpoons, and they can use it, right? They can't move fast on land, but if they're, like, on a ship somewhere with tight corners, I don't think it matters too much. Um, but they'd be, like, useless on a beach battle or something like that. But, like, maybe a ship or even a bridge where, like, the maximum distance across, the like, the map is only, like, 15 to 20. Something like that where they can also, like, jump to get into the water. I think mm-hmm. that would make them kind of a threat for sure. Mm-hmm. I know I was reading if players mm-hmm. pull them onto a beach, that's, like, certain death for the marrow. Like, they can't handle that. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah, yeah. This thing, like, you don't want to use it on the beach. But they get multi-attack, and having a party run into more, more than one of them can make them a threat. They can hit multiple players, you know, jump overboard back to safety when things look rough. And I think that's how you play them. Like, I'd like to think of creatures or monsters that they have the desire to live and would run when it serves them. Uh, that said, they have dark vision. And I know everyone has dark vision. Like, yeah, I, I know that joke. <laughs> but I take it. But it's underwater dark vision. Come on now. <laughs> so that is a difference, though. So having an underwater journey for, like, treasure or relic or something, uh, I'd have my players pass through, like, an underwater caverns that are either, like, pitch black or could make this like an interesting battle. As a DM, though, I'd use my understanding of physics to impact how light works underwater. Like, I'm someone who used to dive, and I know that light doesn't travel as far as, or as fast underwater as it does in air. So maybe, you know, the wizard can't, you know, is casting dancing light, but, you know, maybe there's no dim light. Maybe it's just in the immediate vicinity. Mm-hmm. So you can't Ooh, see every... That would make it extra scary. Yeah. You can't see every nook and cranny, and that's where I think the mirror would shine. <laughs> no pun intended. Just like coming out of the dark, you know, having them hide in the shadows and ambush foes with their harpoons, I think is a great first move. 
you know, as a DM, getting the drop on the players can make the sense of urgency in the situation. And I think it makes them more interested in the battle. So I also would use numbers with these creatures. You know, being underwater with a large number of these can really pose a challenge for parties that are like mid-level for sure, too. You know, maybe not for level 14, but I can see the right setup could really pose a risk for level 9 or 10. Um, I think numbers are the game here, though, just numbers. As for players, if I noticed this thing didn't have legs as a character, I would want to lure it somewhere that it can't move. <laughs> Climb onto the crow's nest or move into a big open area. Underwater, they have speed advantage. So, you know, luring them into a tight space might work too. You know, bottleneck them. I think that's our best bet. Mm, that okay. would work. Yeah, round them up. Get rid of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a great tactic. All right, so Fomorians are awesome. They're on page 136 of the Monster Manual. Uh, just in case I forgot, Marrow's on page 219 of the Monster Manual. Uh, Fomorians are a challenge level 8, uh, plus 6 strength, plus 0 dex, plus 5 con. Negative one intelligence plus two wisdom, negative two charisma. Uh, but like they have good hit points, like you know it's 149 hit points. These things are awesome. They have dark vision for 120 feet. Their passive perception is 18. Oh wow! Yeah, these things are cool. Ooh. Um, they get multi attacks. They, they have a great club, so they can make one great club attack, or they can make two. They also have what's called an evil eye. <laughs> What is with all the evil eyes in I this episode, the Egyptian episode, I swear. <laughs> yeah, I, but apparently it's like a rage, like magic kind of thing. Like the creature takes psychic damage by looking at how hideous this thing is. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> um, but the evil eye comes with a curse and you get to choose one of the, like you get to choose, um, you only can use it once per short rest. And it essentially gives the creature, like, it halves the speed and gives a disadvantage on ability checks, saving throws, and attacks based on strength or dex. Oh. Yeah, it's nasty. Huh, comes at a price. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, as a DM, obviously I noticed it's minus one to intelligence. So they're form- formidable, but they're not smart. So they're slightly dumber than the average human. So, you know, like someone that believes that schools have litter box for furries. <laughs> not the smartest light bulb of them yeah, all <laughs> yeah yeah so big words confuse them uh that said you know the book does say that they will form alliances with others when it suits your needs so consider that um we also know that they have slaves and captives which should be taken into consideration additionally they live in the underdark and the book says they live near places with food water and mushrooms so i'm going to come back to that so as a dm i would want to set up a network of tunnels and caverns for the players maybe this is like uh, maybe this part uh, this is like part of an underdark hook like I wouldn't have this be like the main quest but maybe something that they like stumble upon like you know the captives maybe they stumble upon like the cave with the captives and it kind of paints a picture of how gruesome it is make it clear like it's not a good setup um, the people who are captive clearly do not want to be there or are clearly at risk with these giants uh, so my biggest focus though as a DM is going to be the curse the evil eye I love when as a DM you know we can give odd ailments to players I think it makes combat super interesting, right? And I'd probably have this creature use it on whoever gets closest, right? Because it's like a defense mechanism. So usually that's going to be your melee characters. And it's a charisma saving throw, so maybe that's not their best save. Giving a melee character half speed and disadvantage on all strength and dex checks, attacks, and saving throws can completely cripple their entire plan. Uh, that yeah, said, like that's it for them. Yeah, that's it. Their multi attacks are great. They have a reach of fifteen feet, meaning that a well crafted encounter makes a tough combat. Like lay out the room that they're going to fight this giant. Give it like a distance of maybe like fifty five across, or maybe sixty five seventy feet. It should have similar effects. 
It's a huge creature, meaning that it's already taking up a 15-foot diameter space. And having an extra 15 feet to hit gives you a really good range. So its evil eye has a range of 60 feet, meaning that you can also hit foes that aren't within that 15 feet of you. So you want to find a way to lure players into tight space with this monster, like lead into its reach, and applying that curse to someone that the creature sees as a threat. Set it up so that it's like possible everyone takes damage. But you want to put pressures on the player to come up with a solution. Maybe have the giant lead the players like like kind of with a captive that's about to be devoured. Or maybe like it's eating like into an eating room or something. <laughs> the the giant's kitchen. Something like that, yeah. Big friendly giant, yo. <laughs> I don't know about friendly, but yeah. <laughs> I additionally though it says mushrooms are nearby, and this is where I got really excited. So you can use fungi, which are super awesome creatures. I love Ooh. violet fungi, uh, and the gaspores. They can be made to, uh, so the violet fungus can be made to look as they're part of the seedry. They're supposed to blend in. So the book says Fomorians uh, live near mushrooms. So maybe now use that to put pressure on your players. Like the giant knows it's leading them into a mushroom room. <laughs> Wait, this is so sinister. <laughs> I know. I'm a mean DM. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. I don't know if I'd ever play with you. Dang. <laughs> oh. So, uh, the gas spore is at wonderful risks because it gives poison damage and it creates like they're infected with the disease and it kind of adds more pressure when the players end up getting focused on the mushrooms and this giant at the same time. Uh, so I think this is great, you know, especially because like you think about it, they live in the underground, like they know their environment and they're going to use it. That said, as a player, if I notice the range on this thing, my focus is going to be guerrilla tactics, hit and run. Hit and run. <laughs> right? Like run, run. Yeah, like hit it from afar <laughs> and run away. Like its speed's only 30. So you would notice, the players would notice that pretty quickly it's not moving faster than them. So like they'd have to act smart, right? Like you'd have, you'd want to like get far enough away that you can hit and then move. Um, and then just mm-hmm. kind of constantly staying out of its reach. I guess that's the best you can do. And as far as I know, I think the Fomorians in D&D only have one eye. Yeah. I don't know if that matters, but I'm sure they can't, you know, they don't have like, you know, 360 vision. They can't see you if you're behind them. Honestly, I think what you have given us with these three monsters has already <laughs> been more than enough, especially this duel ahead. Good gracious. I mean, like as a DM, I try to set up very, uh, very nerve wracking battles, but like not to the point where I'm like trying to be mean. I like my players being creative. I like them yeah. planning. I like them using their abilities. I like them using their magic items. I like them having to think outside of the box. And I think that's what makes the game so wonderful is that there's so much versatility and that ability for them to be like, well, I'm going to do this instead. I think mm-hmm. that's where it shines over like a, you know, like a video game is that your players are like, well, I'm going to try this. I'm like, sure, yeah. you can try. You can try. Go for it. No, I love And when you said kind of putting that sense of pressure on them to really think of a solution that's out of the box like that's where it's fun that's where it gets to be really fun well this was super fun i cannot wait till we do it again next month thank you all of you for tuning in please subscribe like give us a five star on itunes all the great stuff and tell your friends tell your friends about the man the legend ben Richten and his guide to monsters and lore i'm madison see you next time i'm ben see you next time